Well, I think there's one thing in the world that we all long for. I think there's one thing that every single person wants. And many of us here try to find it in what the world offers us. And maybe we try to find this thing in career or job. Or maybe we try to find it in our possessions, the the kind of things and items we can accumulate over a lifetime. Or maybe we try and find this thing in relationships. Uh, We're hoping that that guy or girl will finally give us this one thing that we've always longed for. And I think that thing that we're all looking for is satisfaction. Total and utter satisfaction. Isn't that what we want? Something that quenches that deep down thirst that we all have. That feeling of rest, knowing that we are completely satisfied. And this kind of relates to our If Only series that we just finished a couple of weeks ago, doesn't it? If only I had that perfect job. If only I had financial security or a perfect relationship, then I would be satisfied. Yet how often do we search and search in these things but they never satisfy. You see, the Bible says that none of these things can give us the true satisfaction that we all desire. And more than this, not only do these things not satisfy, they don't deal with our biggest problem, which isn't dissatisfaction, but disunity from God, a broken relationship with our Creator. And this is what we're gonna explore as we look at John 4 tonight and meet the Samaritan woman. It's all about a search for satisfaction that uncovers the greatest treasure of all, eternal life. Now to fully understand what's happening here in John chapter four, uh, we need to think about the wider context. So just flick back one page to me to John chapter three. If we just scan the start of John chapter three, we can see that Jesus is discoursing with a man called Nicodemus. Now this man was religious, he was a teacher of the law. Yet Nicodemus didn't know everything. He didn't understand that the way into God's kingdom was not by perfect obedience to the law, because that was impossible, but it's by a new life given by God to those who believe in his son, Jesus. As Adam was teaching us this morning, it's through faith that we receive this salvation, this new life. Just look down at verse three, and Jesus explains this. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again of the Spirit. Does Nicodemus understand? Verse four has the answer for us. No, he doesn't. Nicodemus asks, how is this possible to enter the womb for a second time? See, we here, like Nicodemus, need to understand that life forever, peace with God now, and entry into God's kingdom is a gift. That is what Jesus is teaching. And it's a gift to be received, not a something to be earned. As we believe in Jesus and his death on the cross, that is the gift we receive. And that was true for Nicodemus, and it's gonna be true for us here today, and it's gonna be true in the passage as we look and meet this Samaritan woman, someone completely the opposite of Nicodemus and his law abiding. And if we read John 20, 31, we would know that this is the whole purpose of John's gospel. John wrote his gospel that people may believe in Jesus John 20, 31 says this, but these are written that you may believe or have faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
That is why John wrote his gospel. He wants us to believe in Jesus and have this new life. So let's dive into tonight's text. Our first point is the gift of life is for all people. The gift of life is for all people. Just look down at verse 1 again with me. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. See, the detail at the opening of this chapter may seem slightly insignificant, but really it fits perfectly into the context of John. See, in John's gospel, there's a section which is John 2 to chapter 10. And in this kind of eight chapters, Jesus is performing lots of miracles and lots of signs, as John calls them. And each of these signs is meant to kind of point a little bit more clearly to who Jesus is, about why he's coming. And with each new sign, each new miracle, uh, the opposition, the aggression to Jesus grows and grows and grows. You see, as Jesus' ministry spreads and more people are baptized, the Pharisees, the kind of religious people of the day, they become more angry, more aggressive towards Jesus. And if we read through John's gospel, we would see that this climax is in chapter 11, the final sign when he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And it's at this point that the Pharisees say, no more. Time's over, Jesus. Enough is enough. That's when they decide we're going to kill this Jesus. It's interesting at the start of this chapter that Jesus, part of why he goes to Galilee is because he doesn't want the Pharisees thinking that him and John the Baptist are kind of rivals against each other. That they're not kind of in a competition to see who can baptize the most people or have the most followers. Jesus' leaving makes it clear that John the Baptist and Jesus are united in their cause, not disunited. So we can see from verse one to three, Jesus leaves and he's heading back to Galilee. And now verse four, this is where our interest should peak. Just look at it with me. John says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Again, we could easily read over this, couldn't we? Just think this is a narrative detail. It's part of the story that John is giving us. But it's so much more than that. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans had a bitter rivalry and dispute You see, the Samaritan people, they were those left after the exile to Babylon. And lots of those left, uh, the Samaritans, they intermarried with people of different countries. Uh, They broke the Mosaic law. And even more than this, it meant that for those who were left behind, their religion, their Judaism, became tainted with paganism. It became a mix of Judaism and paganism. And then a few hundred years later, the exiles returned back to the Promised Land And the hatred continued, Jews and Samaritans against each other. Again, it climaxed a couple of hundred years before Jesus, the Jews actually went into Samaria and burnt down their temple. So all of this helps us that when we read the line, he had to go through Samaria, we know that what's about to happen is a big deal. We need to pay attention. You see, Jews didn't often go through Samaria on a whim. Samaria wasn't somewhere you went on a nice little trip out with the family. Actually, some Jews would travel tens and tens, if not hundreds of miles, to go around Samaria to make sure they never actually put a foot in the country. It kind of shows us the extent they were willing to go. They wanted to avoid Samaria at at all costs. Now, in verses 5 and 6, we see Jesus eventually, he travels in, and now he's in Samaria, and he heads to a well. Just think of the picture with me. It's the middle of the day in the Middle East. It's scorching heat. And Jesus is tired. He wants refreshment from his journey. 
I don't know how many of you have been reading the news recently about the record-breaking temperatures in France and pictures of people diving into fountains and ponds and pools. I think we can imagine, that's the kind of picture we have here in John's Gospel, sweltering heat, Jesus heads to the well. Again, a small narrative detail, but it's so interesting that John picks up on this. Here he is trying to paint this picture of Jesus, the almighty son of God. Yet here we have Jesus going to a well because he's thirsty. We have Jesus, the one who is fully God, fully man. We can see his weakness on display. Just glance down at verse seven with me. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There's a couple of key things we need to pick from these verses. Firstly, notice that this woman has come to the well in the middle of the day and she's come alone, both of which is odd. Most people who would go to the well for water, they would go in the, right at the start of the day, early morning, or they'd go after the sun had set in the kind of cool of the evening. They'd never go during the hot, searing middle of the day. And secondly, notice again that she's alone. That's also what normally women would come in groups for protection and to help each other draw water from the well. So with the question asked, why is she here? Why is she here at this time? Why is she here alone? Well, just think about that, because we're going to come back to that a little later. Secondly, notice with me also how she's a little taken back by Jesus' request. Just look at it. How can you ask me for a drink, she says? You, a Jew, me, a Samaritan. She's kind of confused, isn't she? Don't you know, Jesus, that there's, there's a hatred between our people? There's a social divide. There's a barrier. You see, people like you... Jesus, and normally look down on Samaritans like me. Why are you asking me? But I think, isn't this the Jesus we know and love? Jesus, who with one simple request for water seems to smash down a social divide. He seems to find that common ground of humanity between himself and the Samaritan. He kind of ends the animosity, kind of disarms the woman. And the quest is even more surprising because Jesus is talking to her. And as a woman, this was quite a shocking thing. It might not be shocking to our 21st century ears, but this was where a culture where sadly women were seen as second-class citizens. Their word was not trusted in a court of law. Women had no property rights. They often never worked other than in the home. So again, Jesus is being radical here. Jesus approaching this woman, starting this conversation, this is radical for the time. And just look at how the conversation, it turns from water, something quite simple, to something so much deeper. Look at verse 10 with me. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus has flipped the whole conversation around. The one asking for water now addresses this Samaritan woman and offers her the gift of God, offers her this living water. Just imagine how that would sound, this thirst-quenching water in a desert. But then we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus actually on about? What does he mean when he says living water? 
Well, his image of living water seems to kind of purposely have two levels to it. He could be talking about just normal water, fresh water, kind of living in the sense that it's bubbling up from the ground. It's a fresh spring in the ground. It's going to provide water year in, year out. And like I said, we've got to remember that in a hot desert country, in a barren landscape, water was fundamental to the survival of the people and the crops and the livestock. So someone offering living water, a spring of water, is a very attractive proposition. But there's also a deeper meaning, and this meaning is rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. See, God says in Jeremiah 2 and verse 13, he says this, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. See, God was saying in Jeremiah that the Israelites, and including the Samaritans in this case, they'd rejected him. They'd rejected God. They'd rejected the fresh supply of God's grace and mercy and love. Rejected the fresh supply of blessing from a merciful God to his people. And even more than this, Jeremiah says, they've not only rejected God's way, they've tried to pave their own paths. They've rejected the fresh living water God offers and instead they've gone their own way. They've dug muddy puddles. They've got broken cisterns that can't even hold the water they were designed for. You see, the people, they're left with nothing by going their own way. Just misery and dissatisfaction. They're left with a thirst that can never be quenched. And if we want to think more about this water thing, we could look at Ezekiel 36, Isaiah 1, Zechariah 14. All these passages pick up on the water imagery, water that cleanses us from our wrongdoings, water that is an image for the life-transforming work of God's Holy Spirit. So we can see that water that Jesus is offering is an amazing gift. It's so much more, to the, more than just H2O. He's offering himself, he's offering God, he's offering life. And he's offering it to this Samaritan woman and such an unlikely person. How is she going to respond? How would you respond to this offer of eternal life from Jesus? Well, look down at verse 11 with me. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? She doesn't get it, does she? She doesn't understand. How can you, Jesus, get this fresh living water? You don't even have a bucket and rope to get it with. But then actually look at the second part of her question. It's an interesting one, isn't it? She asks, are you greater than our father Jacob? We're told earlier that this well is taking, this conversation, sorry, is taking place at a well. And we now know that it's a well that Jacob, one of the patriarchs, dug for his family and his livestock. But the woman is saying, if you can provide this living water, if you can provide the same water that Jacob provided, but you don't have to dig, you don't have anything to draw with, then maybe you are greater than Jacob. But you can tell from the style of question, this woman expects the answer to be a no. This guy seems like a nobody, she's thinking. He's just a nobody Jew, a washed up, thirsty traveler. How could he be greater than our father Jacob? So the conversation continues. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them 
will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus again reiterates that what he is offering is more than ordinary water. See, the water is meant to be a symbol of God's grace and mercy and salvation. The water that Jesus offers is the water that leads to eternal life. He's offering water that satisfies eternally. Not water that you have to keep drinking, but water that quenches the deepest desire of our soul, the desire for a relationship with our creator. Jesus is inviting the woman to believe in him, to receive the life that he offers. But she's so blinded by her immediate circumstances, her need for drinking water. Just glance at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. All she hears is that Jesus is offering her water. That means she doesn't have to keep coming back to the well. She's thinking, well, not only will this save me repeated trips in the hot day sun to the well, but it'll save me ever being thirsty again. This is a win-win situation. But she's blinded, isn't she? She can't see what's really going on. So we're left with the question, what is Jesus going to do? How is Jesus going to uncover for her her blindness to her real needs, her need of a real, living, and right relationship with her creator, God. Well, let's read on and see what Jesus does. Look down at verse 16. He told her, go, call your husband, and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, And the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. You see, Jesus supernaturally exposes her sinful, immoral past to highlight to her the need for a deeper solution to her problems, a solution that drinking water just won't cut. This woman has had five husbands, and now she's with a sixth man, and this man isn't her husband. This exposure also explains why she comes to the well at midday. Remember earlier asking, why is she coming alone? Why would you come at midday in the sun? This is why. This is why she probably faced lots of shame and scorn from the other women of the town. You see, for her, going with the other women would mean hearing their scorn and their judgment and their gossip. Oh, look, there's that woman who's had five husbands. Oh, keep her away from your husband. She might steal him next. Harsh words from the other women of the town. She'd rather endure the midday sun than hear their stinging words one more time. This woman's past shows a lack of satisfaction. She was always thinking that maybe the next guy will satisfy. Maybe if I marry that younger guy with a bit more money, uh, then I'll get satisfaction. Then I'll have that soul-quenching feeling that I'm really looking for but she found out that none of them could deliver. Not the first husband, not the fifth husband, not the man she's now with. But just notice that Jesus is exposing this, not to shame her. Jesus is not saying, here's your horrible past, feel really guilty. No, he's doing it to expose her need of him. He's saying, you need me. You need what I'm offering. You're blind to the problem you really have. You see, this woman, a social outcast in lots of ways, a Samaritan nobody, 
is right here, personally invited by Christ himself to receive forgiveness, to receive this living water. What an offer, she has. Just like a personal invitation by Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo to watch the World Cup final. Just like an invitation personally written by the Queen to come to Buckingham Palace. We can't quite imagine that invitation. It's like this, but it's so much better what Jesus is offering. This gift of water, of eternal life, is for all people. You see, from the social outcast here in John 4, to the moralist man we saw in John 3, to the 21st century Edinburgh people, to the men and women here today, Jesus is saying the invitation is open. And that brings us on to our second, much shorter point. The worship of the life giver is for all time and all places. The worship of the life giver is for all time and all places. So how is this woman gonna respond to this invitation? She's been given this invitation, come and receive this living water. Come and find forgiveness, come and find eternal life. How is she gonna respond? Look at verse 19 with me. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You see, the fact that Jesus knows her past, it seems to have convinced the woman, okay, maybe this guy isn't just a washed up thirsty Jew traveling, and maybe he's something more, maybe he's a prophet. And by prophet, she just means someone set apart by God to speak his word. She recognizes that Jesus might have some authority. But her question seems to demonstrate that she's still struggling to trust Jesus. She still can't quite get over that Samaritan-Jew divide. The Jews and Samaritans had this fundamental difference in their beliefs. You see, Jews believed, and rightly so, that where people should worship was Jerusalem. But the Samaritans, on the other hand, they believed that it was Mount Gerizim, a place in Samaria. So Jesus responds to her question, a kind of inquiry about theology. Just look at verse 21. Jesus responds, woman, Jesus replied. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. See, Jesus answers the woman's query and he basically answers it in three different parts. Firstly, in verse 21, just glance at it with me, he tells her that a time is coming when neither Jerusalem nor Mount Gerizim will be of any significance. And if we read on in John, we'd find out that John keeps talking about this hour, this time, this arrival of something. And we'd work out that actually what John is on about is Jesus' death and resurrection. So when Jesus dies and rises again, Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim, they become obsolete. The second part of Jesus' answer is in verse 22. So he does correct what she's thinking, this woman. He says to her that actually salvation is from the Jews. The Jews have got it right. God told them in the Old Testament, Jerusalem should be the center of their worship. And then the third part of Jesus' answer is that he reassures her. He reassures her that worship of God, the life giver, it's no longer about places and ceremonies and law. No, 
Look at what he says. It says it's about spirit and truth. It's about receiving Jesus, having his spirit transform your life, and then worshiping God in truth by the truth of his word. See, the Samaritans only acknowledged the first five books of the Bible. They rejected everything else after that. So Jesus is trying to correct her. He's saying to her, true worship is worshiping God how he tells us to in his revealed word. No more temple, no more single focal point of importance. Rather, the life giver, God himself, can be and should be worshipped wherever, whenever, by whoever. If we read on in the account, we would see that when Jesus dies, the temple curtain is torn in two. This was the symbol that worship of God is meant to be universal. The worship of God is for all times, it's for all places. Or maybe the woman is starting to get it. She's starting to understand a bit more about what Jesus is saying to her. Look down at verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. But again, Jesus helps her to see the real truth. Look down at verse 26. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am he. And just to help us get the picture crystal clear for us, what does Jesus mean? What is he claiming to be when he says he's the Christ, the Messiah? Just jump down to verse 42 with me. Verse 42 says, they said to the woman, that's the Samaritan woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man, Jesus, really is the savior of the world. See, Jesus, by claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, is saying, I am the Savior of the world. I am the one who can offer you eternal life, this eternal life-giving water for those who trust in me. As we've already said, John's gospel climaxes at the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in his gospel, Jesus dies in the place of people like this woman. He dies in the place of people like you and me. He dies in the place of the moral failures He dies in the place of the sexually immoral, the destitute, the broken, the social outcast. I want to ask you, do you see the beauty and glory of what Jesus offers here in John's gospel? You see, Jesus, he looks at us. He looks at the thirsty, broken people of this world. He looks at us who've rejected God. He looks at us, those people who've tried to go our own way and fail miserably every time. He turns to us and he says, come. Come to me. Come to me and receive living water that satisfies not just now, but eternally. See, we might know that marriage and lottery wins and promotions in our work They can satisfy in the short term. But only Jesus, only the life we get by trusting in his death will satisfy us eternally. And if you are here and you're thinking, this isn't for me, then let me tell you, it is for you. So you can tonight receive this living water. You can be right with God. You can be satisfied in Christ alone. Just by saying sorry for your sins and for going your own way and asking for forgiveness from God, you can receive what Jesus offers. Maybe you're here tonight and you're a Christian and, to, and maybe you're feeling a bit rubbish about your sin. 
Maybe this week you've, you feel like you've had a failure of a week. You've come here tonight beating yourself up for not trusting God. You're beating yourself up for going your own way time and time again. Well, here is the invitation to you. Come. Come taste again the forgiveness on offer at the cross. All sins forgiven. All longings satisfied. Just think about that recurring sin that we often so struggle with. That repeated failure. That messed up week. The broken promises you made to God. I'll never do that sin again. I promise God. Those promises that you've broken can be cleansed tonight. You can be forgiven at the cross of Calvary. And finally, I wanna exhort all of us to tell others this good news. What better, what more glorious news do we have to tell than that people can find forgiveness in Jesus? What better news do we have that all our friends and family can find real, lasting satisfaction in the Lord Jesus? Let's pray together.